actually owns the moon? Strictly speaking, no one, or probably it's a bit more precise to say all states jointly own the moon because it's an international territory which can never become part of the national territory of one single state. This is Franz von der Dunk, professor of space law at the University of Nebraska Lincoln in the US. I asked him about what laws are in place to govern the moon. And he told me that, legally, the moon can't be owned by any one country. This was enshrined in something called the Outer Space Treaty, signed way back in 1967, two years before Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had even set foot on the lunar surface. But Franz told me that the legal status of any resources found on the moon raises a whole other set of questions, particularly for those who want to go and extract them. Does this common status, this global common status of the moon, mean that all the resources of the moon are the common property of mankind as well? Or are they, by contrast, resources that every individual state is entitled to harvest in? So if you get to the moon, it's not clear yet whether you can just take whatever you want. And even if you get there, find loads of valuable minerals and set up an actual mining base, you'll face a second legal question. While it is also not uh, possible, legally at least, to permanently occupy the moon as a consequence of the absence of territorial sovereignty, the question is how long are you entitled to use it? There's no prohibition on putting an installation on the moon, does it mean that you're entitled to run that installation for five years or for 15 years or for 100 years before it runs into the violation of permanent occupation? So the law isn't clear how long you're allowed to stay or set up camp for. And then, Franz says, you'd face a third issue around who could go nosing around your mining installation. There is a principle of free access to the facilities of everyone else on the moon on the basis of reciprocity. But at the same time, there is a requirement to refrain from harmful interference. Now, when is a visit, for example, to another mining installation? When is that harmful interference? What does the freedom of access mean? So those are basically the three main issues that need to be solved uh, in order to get a proper regime for, for mining the moon. In the previous episode of To the Moon and Beyond, a podcast series from The Conversation, we heard about today's new space race and the many countries and companies entering the fray. In this episode, we'll be looking at what is drawing so many of these missions back to the lunar surface and what are the practical, legal and ethical questions facing those who want to set up a base there and potentially start mining on the moon. I'm Miriam Frankel, science editor at The Conversation UK. And I'm Martin Archer, space plasma physicist at Queen Mary University of London. And you're listening to To The Moon and Beyond. I think it's uh, an experience that's not only physically different, but allows you to have a bigger picture of where we are in our universe. And no other country has undertaken a lunar landing program Basically because it's still hard, it's still very expensive, and at least is an argument of whether it's worth doing or not. My wish is that this should be an international endeavor rather than a necessary competition. Spreading across the solar system is the same thing to do. 
it's both a smart thing in terms of making us more resilient as a species, but I also think this is a way of opening up the potential of humanity. We have a liftoff, liftoff on Apollo 11. So, the Americans call it a lunar surface asset. That sounds pretty boring. What actually is it, Miriam? It's just another name for what you or I might call a moon base. And NASA has plans under what's called the Artemis program, Artemis being the twin sister of Apollo in Greek mythology, to set one up by 2028. And that's to have what they called a sustained human presence on the moon. Which is funny because actually NASA already has a mission currently in operation called Artemis, which is in orbit around the moon. So they're using the name twice. Uh, but really, 2028 <laughs> isn't that far away. I mean, that's, that's less than a decade. We could have people living on the moon. That's crazy. Well, that is the plan. And the Americans aren't the only ones who want to start living on the moon. Somebody else might even get there first. In April this year, the Chinese have said that they want to build a scientific base on the moon's south pole, and that's within the next 10 years. And surely the Russians will be getting in there as well, right? Yep, yep. They want to set up Camp 2, but it might take them a bit longer. So last year, the Russian space agency Roscosmos said that it wanted to set up a colony on the moon by 2040, which is a bit further in the future. But, I mean, according to that, it seems like the Americans might get there first, I wonder, actually, if, in fact, it's going to end up being an international collaboration, right? We don't have the political tensions that that means that we have to have a space race. You see with the International Space Station, there's a lot more collaboration, even when politically things aren't always great between the the nations. I wonder if they are going to get together and do something a bit bigger collaboratively. I think that means, I mean, the US will certainly be involved because they're open to uh, collaborate with other countries, whereas some countries, such as China, they're more likely to want to do these things completely on their own, which means that they might actually take a bit longer, even though they are also planning on, on going back there. Yeah, but things might change. We don't know. We have to look to the future. Just not too far in the future. We're kind of jumping ahead of ourselves here. And, you know, with all this talk of setting up a base again on the moon, I'm still wondering, it's not really got any safer, has it? Well, there's different elements to that, I think, because I think we're comparing to the Apollo missions... A lot of the dangers, as, as well as the, the natural environment of space itself, was was literally in the space exploration. And I think we've we've demonstrated that we're a lot better at that now. We've developed technology. We're aware of a lot more of the risks, even though as we still do see, you know, we do get rocket explosions and things like that. So it, it is still inherently risky. But I think the exploration aspect is probably a little safer than it was 50 years ago. But as we've talked about before, you know, you haven't changed the fact that radiation in space is is really not a great thing. Damaging cosmic rays, energy shot from the sun. We talked about that in a previous episode and the inherent sort of degradation of the human body just by being off of this planet as well. We decided to call up a doctor to find out what other problems going to space can cause to the human body. My name's Dr. Rowena Christensen. I'm a medical educator at the University of Melbourne. She looks at what happens to the body in extreme environments, including in space. And when I asked her what risks there are of being in space or on the moon for long periods of time, she said that the worst side effects actually happen after only 48 hours. That can include altered immune function, volume shifts. So you tend to get a fluid shift from 
the bottom half of your body to the top half of your body and get a puffy face and uh, your sense of smell gets diminished. So that's a bit like when you're on an aeroplane and everything kind of tastes and smells different and that's pretty well understood. The tissues get a bit waterlogged, a bit like when you have a cold and you lose your sense of smell and actually um, taste is very closely tied to your sense of smell so if you're ability to smell is obstructed in some way, then potentially that's going to affect your taste as well. And so the astronauts in the International Space Station often ask for food that's sort of more spicy than uh, than they would normally like to eat on hmm. Earth because they can't taste things as well as they would. There can be another potentially more serious side effect of having more fluid and so more pressure in your head. That is that astronauts' vision can be affected and hmm. the shape of their eyeball can actually change and For some astronauts, that's meant that they've been left with long-term visual changes as a result of that. That's pretty concerning that, you know, once you get back to Earth, the body doesn't sort of correct itself and go back to normal. Yeah, it it doesn't do that for everyone. And, And Rowena told me that some astronauts have been left actually needing to wear glasses. And so that could be a bit of a concern if astronauts are traveling for, you know, six to eight months to go all the way to Mars. Are astronauts still going to get there with good enough vision to be able to do all the things that they need to do? And actually one of the the side effects which the Apollo astronauts noted was that they had an impaired ability to evaluate distance and so that could potentially be a risky thing in terms mm. of landing spacecraft safely. Wow, so even even just the short-term trip to the moon, they were still seeing these sorts of problems, so it's only going to be worse on trips to Mars. But, I mean, there are other effects as well. What about um, motion sickness from living in an environment without gravity? Yeah, uh, Rowena said that can be a big problem in the, the first couple of days. The balance system in your inner ear no longer knows whether you're you're up or down and what's sideways and so it gets terribly confused and so there's always that possibility of nausea. Being sick is bad enough on Earth and I don't want to imagine vomiting in zero gravity. It'll just go everywhere. <sighs> um, but Rowena told me that actually the lack of gravity has two much more serious consequences your muscles start to lose mass because they don't have to work against gravity anymore and that includes the heart which is basically just made up of muscle and also your bone mineral density tends to decrease and even with the Gemini and Apollo missions which didn't last more than about two weeks in total they noticed a loss in in bone density of around 2 to 4%. So to combat this weakening effect that zero gravity has on your muscles and bones, astronauts aboard the International Space Station exercise for around two hours a day, strapped to kind of a treadmill, and they also pump weights. But as we can see, it doesn't completely combat the side effects because when they come back to Earth, they have to be carried out of the capsule. So for any people living on the moon in the future, Rowena says that exercise will be essential. For instance, on the moon, because the moon only has 
one-sixth of the gravity of Earth, so that's really not going to be anywhere near enough to counter the effects of being in, in microgravity. And the other thing that people often forget about too is that if you want to be able to maintain a healthy body and a healthy muscle mass, you're going to need the right kind of nutrients. So you're going to need a balanced, nutritious diet. And that's, that's certainly possible where Earth is able to supply that kind of balanced, nutritious diet and sort of pack it all up and send it to, to the base. But I, I think it's a lot more interesting issue for, for long-term settlements in terms of will they be able to grow enough of the right kind of food to actually keep people healthy. And I think that's going to be a, a major challenge. I mean, if you saw the film The Martian with Matt Damon in, I mean, I he, was, he was making uh, potatoes and even he got sick of them, even with all the ketchup and stuff like that. So even if you get off of the space ration packs, <laughs> it could still not be that great, right? Yeah, but space ration packs, they do seem awful. I think just the look of adventure food or even my child's baby food, I, I found it hard to even taste it. It just looks disgusting. Whilst food is a very important part of life, certainly mine, there are going to be other problems facing a lunar base with people living on it. The main problem that we will face on the moon is the fact that the lunar day is about 29 Earth day long. This is Frederick Moran, an astrophysicist at the Strasbourg Astronomical Observatory at the University of Strasbourg in France. He says because of this long day and night, humans living on the moon will have a completely different body clock. You will have two weeks of sunlight followed by two weeks of night. So it means that the production of energy using, let's say, solar panels will not be possible unless we develop very, very efficient energy storage units. So basically, uh, living and walking on the moon will have a totally different schedule as on Earth. And so uh, this will have a very strong impact on two uh, humans. On top of this, the surface of the moon is covered with dust. This dust is actually very abrasive, it sticks to everything, and it's quite highly toxic for humans. So it means that First, it will be very important to take care of cleaning the dust out of the equipment and out of the gears that we will wear on the moon. The main problem of this abrasive dust is that it will destroy slowly the machineries and the equipment. Wow, nice, hospitable environment then. That moon dust is really nasty stuff. It clings to absolutely everything. And apparently, according to the Apollo astronauts, they could smell it when they got back into the, to the module. It had this sort of metallic smell, which then almost faded entirely very quickly. So actually, the moon dust back here on Earth doesn't have the smell it did on the moon. Wow. We wanted to find out why there's so much interest, though, in going back to the moon again. What lies beneath the moon's dusty surface that is so enticing? To find out what scientists actually know is there, we called up Catherine Joy, a Royal Society University Research Fellow and Geologist in the School of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Manchester in the UK. We think we understand that there are many potential different resources available at the lunar surface. This means everything from water, 
and oxygen, which are useful both within the context of human exploration for building bases, atmospheres for future astronauts to survive on the lunar surface, and for use in converting both water and oxygen into rocket fuel, so propellants for future exploration either at the surface of the moon or using the moon as a platform for access to deep space environments. And this is something that Professor Yang Gao mentioned in the last episode, uh, harvesting the water from the moon, splitting that into hydrogen and oxygen. You can then react them together again, and that's essentially what goes on inside a rocket. Catherine Joy says that to get oxygen, you can either heat moon rocks up to really high temperatures or break them up using acid or similar processes. And water is potentially available, both trapped within some of the rocks and minerals, and also, we think, within ice deposits. Now, this is where things get a little bit more controversial. We think that within the lunar poles, there are regions of impact craters that preserve ice that's been delivered there through time. However, what we don't really understand is the distribution and the depths of that ice. And whether it is solid ice or whether it's kind of particular ice trapped within mineral veins. And so the great question we have next is not so much in terms of how can we go to mine the moon? But first of all, we need to understand the potential resources and where they're located, how they're accessible. And we need to also develop the technology to be able to detect them and extract them to make them into usable products. Another substance that those in favour of going back to the moon like to talk about is something called helium-3. So helium-3 is one of the isotopes of the element helium, um, which is uh, not commonly found here on Earth. So helium-3 is found at the lunar surface because it's been delivered there by the solar wind. It's been implanted as the moon uh, passes through um, space, being exposed to radiation from the sun. And the sun then implants helium-3 directly into the surface of the moon because it's not protected by an atmosphere. This implantation process happens all the time. However, there are certain regions of the moon where we have higher concentrations of this element helium-3. And we think in particular that it's associated with the mineral ilmenite, which is a titanium-rich mineral, which really loves to suck up helium-3 into its mineral structure. The reason helium-3 is so interesting is because it could potentially be used within a nuclear process to make electricity. Here on Earth, we undertake nuclear fission in our nuclear power reactors. But within the sun, we have the process of nuclear fusion. And if we want to develop clean fusion techniques here on the Earth, we need the element helium-3 to be involved with that process. And so this is why people have suggested the moon would be a great place to go and mine helium-3 potentially bring it back to the Earth to use in future clean energy through nuclear fusion power generation. However, there is a lot of controversy about if the moon is really a viable resource of helium-3. And whilst we know it's there in higher abundances than here on Earth, whether it's actually extractable, mineable, transportable back to the Earth still has to be proven. What else could we find on the moon then if we went digging for it? Well, Joyce says there are some discussions that there could be precious metals up there, such as platinum group metals, gold, palladium, elements used in mobile phones and the clean energy industry. Those particular elements are not commonly associated with lunar rocks themselves. However, they could be delivered to the moon's surface by colliding metal-rich asteroids. And so there is a, a lot of discussion around finding places on the moon where asteroids could have collided into its surface delivering these types of precious metals 
that could be accessible for extraction uh, and purification. So I guess this brings us back to the question of whether, if any future moon missions found any of these resources, what they'd be allowed to do with them. Well, from what we heard earlier from Franz von der Dunk, it sounds as if the law isn't really quite ready for that to happen yet. And to find out a bit more about the laws in place, we called up another space lawyer. My name is Tanya Masson-Zwan and I am an assistant professor and deputy director of the International Institute of Air and Space Law at Leiden University in the Netherlands. I asked Tanya about the Moon Treaty, also known as the Moon Agreement, an international agreement made in 1979. Because it's only uh, 18 countries that have ratified it and a couple more that have signed it. Uh, And so it is sometimes referred to as a failed treaty uh, because it is quite controversial. 18 ratifications isn't a lot. And the countries that are signed up are those that you wouldn't associate with space exploration anyway. The Netherlands, Belgium, Pakistan, Austria. So neither the United States, nor Russia, nor China, nor India, nor France have ratified the Moon Agreement. That is because mainly because it contains the concept of uh, what is called the common heritage of mankind. The treaty says that the Moon and its resources, and the Moon actually implies all celestial bodies, the Moon and all other celestial bodies, are the common heritage of mankind. And it is not entirely clear what this means, the common heritage of mankind. Does it mean that everything that uh, a company could have in profits from uh, exploiting resources in outer space has to be split among all the countries, members of the United Nations? What exactly it means is unclear, and that is why many states don't like it and, and will not ratify it. Wait, so this is different from what was agreed in the Outer Space Treaty signed a decade before in 1967? Yes, that's right. The Outer Space Treaty contained another concept called the province of mankind. Which is a little bit more vague, if you like, which is perhaps more a moral obligation Hmm. that we have to somehow share benefits and have everyone, of course, uh, be part of this new endeavor. But the Moon Agreement, the common heritage principle, is that is the reason why this treaty is not ratified by mainly the space powers. So if none of the space powers want to sign the Moon Treaty, and if they haven't done so 40 years later, it's not really looking likely that it's going to happen. Does that mean the time is nigh for another? You might think so. But Tanya says that isn't likely to happen either. So I'm not very optimistic about the chances of success of having a new treaty. You see in in the world today, states are not very willing to give up their sovereignty by adhering to new treaties. And you see it in aviation or in the area of climate change uh, and other areas. So even though there are areas where states should agree on things, they usually do that in the form of what we call soft law. So non-legally binding principles that do lay down the behavior of states. She says there are certain areas in issues where everybody agrees that rules are needed. I believe that space debris management, space traffic management, long-term sustainability of space activities, and, and certainly also the use of space resources are good examples. But I expect that it will rather be done in the form of guidelines or standards and not really in the form of a new treaty because the geopolitical situation is not very uh, positive about adopting new treaties. She's actually been busy over the last few years as part of the Hague International Working Group, a collaboration of academics, companies and international organisations who are all thinking about what those new guidelines might look like. 
And they're going to be making their ideas, or what they call building blocks, public towards the end of the year. One of their main ideas is to have legal principles that are adaptive, so able to deal with issues as they arrive. We should look at topics that are going to be happening first and, and try to find solutions for those and not look too far in the future. For instance, uh, we should not now put in stone what is going to be uh, the framework for bringing back Platina to Earth. I mean, mm. clearly we will be using first outer space resources in outer space. So let's look at that. But she says a key part of any future framework will be principles of planetary protection. So making sure the space environment isn't spoiled for future exploration. And we'll be talking a bit more about this in our next episode and considering the problem of humans going to other planets and contaminating them with our alien Earth bacteria and microbes. However, on the moon, we're pretty sure that there isn't any life. So Currently, but actually there are some ideas that very early in the moon's formation, when, when it was still volcanically active, there could have been the conditions present for life. So actually, the real issue is that if we're going mining the moon, we might be destroying the evidence of past life on the moon, which Such as fossils. Great. Exactly. Or, you know, mm. dead microbes or leftover, things like that. So we don't want to destroy that evidence if we go up mining the moon. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But a lot of other people are a bit worried because the moon's really important in stabilizing the Earth, but that's not really an issue. It would take us like 200 odd million years to even just mine 1% of the moon's mass. So we shouldn't be worried that it's going to muck up the environment on Earth. Well, that's a relief. I asked Franz van der Dunk about what the punishments would be for those who break international space law. Unfortunately, outer space is not different from the international community as a whole in the sense that there is no... A global police force. There's no global judge who can uh, punish the guilty of violators. And we've seen that, of course, in other areas of the international community as well. And the big states are able to get away with a bit more or with much more probably than the small states. So then it boils down to political punishment. If a certain state is seen to be violating the international rules, whether itself or by proxy or because of its private op operators, there may be a political punishment. Uh, other states may boycott that state, may raise a political stink about it. But, but what would a harsher punishment look like? I mean, even if it's hard to actually introduce. Things like economic boycotts, and, and in particular mm. in the context of mining of the moon, this is of course an interesting option because we should realize that the companies that are and there are a few companies which have claimed that they are very interested in this possibility, in particular in the United States. Well, obviously, companies want to have the largest possible market that they can have, which means that they uh, want to be able to sell their stuff legally across the world. And in particular, if we're talking about uh, a legal business where the investment runs into the billions before you get your first resources on the market, you don't want to then have to start arguing about market access. So this would be a little bit like blood diamonds today, diamonds that have come from conflict zones. If resources were mined illegally on the moon, then the companies or countries that did it might lose a lot of money. Do you think there could ever be a scenario where countries went to war over resources in space? And what would that look like? I mean, would it be similar to the US-China trade war? It could well be. Obviously, if, if there are interests at stake of that size, 
you know, if we're talking about billions, potentially billions or, or even trillions uh, worth of economic resources, then obviously, and we've seen that throughout history, um, the incentive is there for the states who can get there to try to get as large a share as possible. And if there's not enough for everyone or not enough low-hanging fruit for everyone, the likelihood for conflicts is, is certainly rife. It will probably start first on the level of a trade war, which is, of course, not an actual war in the physical sense of the word, but can already do a lot of damage to everyone around. Hmm. But if things further escalate, as we've seen in the past, economic wars can also then escalate into real fighting. And I can only say, I hope that never happens. I can only say as a lawyer that we can at least help a little bit by creating fair and transparent and legal systems, we can help a little bit in trying to avert that danger. Wow, a, a space trade war. It seems like George Lucas was right with these prequels, eh? <laughs> it sounds kind of exciting and boring at the same time. Yeah, the prequels. I asked Franz whether it's ethical that those who can afford to go and mine the moon do it, and those who can't, don't. You used the word ethical already, so that is a question that goes beyond the law itself. Mm. I think the answer is a caveated yes. Yes, it's ethical, because if you do not allow those who can afford to do it to, to go there, we will probably never go there. But we should allow those to go ahead within the realm of a solid legal framework which protects the main public interests. Think about safety, think about security, think about the environment and space debris, and also think about at least a level of international sharing. Uh, I don't talk about an international uh, taxation on stuff like that, but there should obviously be a possibility for more than just a handful of players to benefit from. There has to be a certain system which also allows latecomers still to find a benefit therein. All right, hold up, hold up. I, I think we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves here. In what way? Well, when we spoke to geologist Catherine Joy, she said we're still a long way off all of this, even if companies can identify where they want to mine and get the funding in place to do it, they're going to face multiple challenges in getting the stuff out. So there's first of all, how do you pick the soil up? How do you actually extract it from the ground? And the types of technology used there range from uh, small diggers and bucket tools through to coring devices. How do those systems deal with sharp abrasive dust? working in low gravity environments, power considerations for how those instrumentation can be sustained in a durable way through the lunar night and through the lunar day. Do you need to take solar panel technology? Do you need to think about nuclear uh, powered kind of radioisotope generators? And that really depends on where you're going on the moon. Do you need to operate in a very cold crater environment? So you need to have electronic systems that can operate under extreme cold. Do you need to operate within the high lunar daytime? So your electronic systems need to last under you know, 150 degree heat conditions. Are those uh, types of things, can they survive in a very harsh radiation environment? And then once you've extracted that material, how do you sort that soil into usable feedstock? So you'll have to sieve it, um, disaggregate it, get it down to the grain size that you need to put into your final processing tool, be it an oven, be it a microwave oven, uh, be it some sort of carbothermal reduction system. You know, th there's lots of complexities and each stage of that production process, that technology has to be perfected before it can all be coupled together to get a working system. 
And if you're doing this robotically, that requires a lot of things like teleoperations, automation of systems, or do you use crew to do some of this, humans on the surface to facilitate these types of very complex operations. And so this is what the community is getting together to think about is how do we plug these things together to get them to work as a sum of many different parts. Wow, that's a serious amount of unknowns. You know, they don't focus on all that mundane technical stuff in science fiction films, do they? Well, no, because they're trying to make them entertaining rather than realistic. Some of them are more realistic than others, let's say. Yeah, but they're still entertaining. Um, That's the main point. Right, back to reality, though. Um, (laughs) Catherine says that samples are going to be really crucial, particularly if we want to understand if there is water at the lunar poles. Being a lunar sample person... I would love to have a piece of those samples back in our lab here on Earth, Mm. because when we actually can grab polar ices, um, volatile rich material, volatile rich soil, bring it back to our lab, we can answer all those questions much more easily than we can by sending robotic landers to the moon itself. So I'd like to challenge future space agencies and um, resource commercial providers to get us pieces of volatile rich polar ices back here on Earth that we can study to then uh, really address some of these scientific questions we have about the nature, the origin, the sources of volatiles at the moon and where these volatiles have come from from the rest of the solar system. But so far, none of the international missions to the moon are factoring in what's needed to bring back a block of ice. To date, there isn't a true kind of icy return mission on the books where you can cryogenically preserve ice and get it back to Earth. And that's the real technological challenge. Preserving cryogenically material at um, you know, a very, very low temperature, so sort of liquid nitrogen temperatures uh, in, a, in a capsule, getting it off the moon, getting it back from uh, moon to Earth orbit, and then actually getting that material to survive back down through Earth's atmosphere uh, in a robotic lander to be collected here on Earth. Catherine says that if we can test out this capability on the moon, somewhere where we've landed before, then it will be useful for those who'd love to do the same on comets or asteroids or even some of the solar system's icy moons around planets like Jupiter and Saturn. Yeah, these are some of the places that scientists would love to explore if they got the chance. And we'll be talking to some about using the moon as a launch pad to go deeper into space in our next and final episode of the series. Places that I'd really, really like to go to are are the places where life might be. Places like Mars, obviously, and places like Europa and Enceladus. That's in the last episode of To the Moon and Beyond, when we'll be looking ahead to 2069 and to what space exploration will look like 100 years after Neil Armstrong first stepped on the moon. To make sure you don't miss this, subscribe to To The Moon and Beyond wherever you get your podcast. You can also find all the episodes on theconversation.com where you'll also find loads more articles from academics around the world marking the 50th anniversary of the NASA moon landings. And if you like this podcast, please give us a review on Spotify or iTunes. It really does help. And if you have any questions about the series, you can get in touch via email on podcast at theconversation.com or you can reach me on Twitter at Miriam Frankel. And I'm on Twitter as at Martin Archity. A big thanks to all the academics who spoke to us for this episode and to the journalism department at City University of London for letting us use their studios. Thanks to Jonathan Gang, Martin LaMonica and Zoe Jazz. To the Moon and Beyond is produced by Gemma Ware and Annabel Bly. Sound editing by Siva Thangaraja. 
I'm Martin Archer. And I'm Miriam Frankel. And you've been listening to To The Moon and Beyond. <laughs> <laughs>